0: We are continuing our series through the book of Matthew. This morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 through 22. That can be found on page number 977 of the Pew Bible. Uh, Somebody suggested that I add the page number to the opening slide in order to potentially help us all get to where um, we want to be sooner rather than later. Again, that's Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Just a small section here. I had originally planned on tackling all the way through verse 28, but as I uh, began to study, I realized there's so much packed into this uh, short passage, as we will see as we dive in. So, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and as always, we need your Spirit to come and enlighten our minds so that we might understand. As Jesus said in this passage, it is you who reveals Christ to us. And we ask God that you would do that again this morning, that we might worship you, that we might love you, and that we might live lives that are holy and pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I'm not much of an architect or a builder, although I did turn my garage into a bedroom a couple of months ago. Um, But if I were uh, to build something, even I know. Uh, there's a couple obvious things that that someone would need. Uh, First of all, uh, we would need a plan. Uh, We would want materials. We would want a, a solid foundation. We would want someone who could take those materials, execute the plan, and build the building on top of that foundation. And our passage this morning is a major turning point in the book of Matthew where Jesus begins to prepare his disciples for the work of building that he's going to do through them. Because Jesus is a builder. He's building a kingdom and he's got a plan. He has a foundation and materials and he's got this group of disciples who can execute the plan. And the way that he's going to build his kingdom is by building a church. And he intends to do that through the work and the ministry of the disciples and the church leaders who would come after them. They are the foundation of his house, according to the Apostle Paul. And so it's really important that we know that the foundation is solid and how to build onto it. And so first we're going to see That the church is built with a true confession, followed by a true conversion, on top of a true foundation. And finally, this all happens through a true proclamation. So first, a true confession. As we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, everything Jesus does is intentional, and that is no different here. Uh, The next move he makes is to take the disciples up to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, Matthew tells us, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi is a city in the northern part of Israel that was given to King Herod by Augustus Caesar. Uh, And Herod's son, Philip, rebuilt the city and renamed it after Caesar and himself, which is why it's called Caesarea Philippi. And while this was a city that was technically within the borders of Israel, it was a multicultural city. It was the Las Vegas of Israel Uh, Whatever happened in Caesarea Philippi stayed in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, It was a city that represented all that the world has to offer. There were temples there to pagan gods. And so here in Caesarea Philippi, among all of the religious options available, the question is and always has been, who is Jesus? Notice Jesus doesn't go to Jerusalem to ask his disciples this question. He wants to know how people are interpreting him among all the religious options available. How are people explaining his miracles and his teachings? And we all do this, don't we? Anytime something out of the ordinary happens, we want an explanation for it. When crime is up, we want to know, well, what what happened? What changed? Why is is crime up? If uh, attendance at church is declining across the country, we we want to know, what are the social conditions that are contributing to this? If If a particular teacher is popular, we want to know, well, why? What is it about his message? What is it about our current cultural climate that makes him popular? And so Jesus wants to know what explanations there are about him. And the disciples said, Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. If you remember the Pharisees, their explanation is is that Jesus is working for Satan. A couple of Gentiles have called him the son of David. But apparently the most common explanation is that Jesus is a great prophet. Herod's suggestion that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead apparently is floating around out there. Elijah was a prophet who was supposed to return and go before the Messiah. Uh, So some were saying that Jesus is not the Messiah himself, but that he's here preparing the way for a Messiah still to come. Jeremiah was a prophet who stood up to the religious leaders of his day. So maybe Jesus is like Jeremiah, powerful but poor and rejected and on the outside of the establishment. And in our day there's plenty of explanations for who Jesus is as well. Muslims still believe that Jesus was a great prophet. Buddhists believe that Jesus Uh, was a great Buddha. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spiritual offspring of Heavenly Father and His wife, who He married when He was a human back on His home planet before He became the God of His own universe. Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. Most secular people believe that he was a good man or a good teacher. Uh, Some go so far as to say that he didn't even exist, that he's a literary creation from combining other religious ideas of the time. The point is that everybody has an answer to the question, who is Jesus? Which is why the real question will always be The question Jesus poses to the disciples next, which is, but who do you say that I am? You see, there's the truth. There's who Jesus really is. And then there's who we say Jesus is. So the question is, is the real Jesus the same as who you say he is? Because you can only enter the kingdom. You can only be part of the church Jesus is building. If what you believe about Jesus corresponds to who Jesus really is. And then Peter, as the leader and the spokesperson for the rest of the disciples, replied, You are the Christ. The Son of the Living God. As we've discussed before, Christ is not Jesus' last name, It's it's a title. And it means the Anointed One. So, the Anointed One in Hebrew is the Messiah, in Greek, it's the Christ. So, Jesus is the Anointed One, the Son of the Living God. In the Old Testament, prophets were anointed. Prophets were those who spoke God's words on behalf of God to God's people. And so Jesus is the ultimate prophet because he is the very word of God. He speaks to God's people perfectly. He perfectly represents God as the ultimate prophet. Also in the Old Testament, priests were anointed. Priests are those who go between God and the people and offer prayers on behalf of God's people. They offered sacrifices on behalf of God's people. And so Jesus is the ultimate priest because he goes right into the heavenly temple and prays on behalf of God's people. He brings the ultimate sacrifice, his own life, His own blood. And finally, in the Old Testament, kings were anointed. And Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's ruling and reigning right now from his heavenly throne. And those who know him and trust him and rely on him, we are his people. We are the subjects of his kingdom. So Jesus is the Christ And he's also the son of the living God. Let me ask you this. When dogs reproduce, what kind of creatures do they have? Dogs, right? They have more dogs. When cats reproduce, they have more cats. When human beings reproduce, there's more human beings. And so if God produces a son, what kind of being will his son be? God. God. But Jesus is not just another God, because there's only one God, which is why Jesus is God, because he's always existed as God. The writer of the Hebrews tells us Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time where God's glory did not have radiance? No. God's glory has always radiated. Just like the sun is always shining from the moment it came into existence. Jesus, for all eternity has always been the Son of the living God and the exact imprint of his nature. As the Athanasian Creed puts it, Jesus is very God of very God. This is the true confession of who Jesus is. This is who Jesus actually is. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, did Peter fully understand all of this? Was Peter thinking prophet, priest, and king, very God of very God? Probably not. Like most Jews of his generation, he was probably thinking Jesus is the long awaited king of Israel who would rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. But even though Peter and the rest of the disciples still had much to learn, this is a true confession. We can lack understanding, as all of us do, and still have a true confession. But we can't reject who Jesus has revealed himself to be and his word. We can't be wrong and still have a true confession. Okay? And a true confession comes from a true conversion. So sometimes when I'm doing homework with my kids and they get the answer right, I'm suspect. I think, did you guess? Did you just get lucky? I'm not sure you really understand how you got that answer. And so instead of celebrating that they got the right answer and, and celebrating that they're growing and their understanding and their knowledge, I say, wait a minute, show me how you got that. But Jesus doesn't do that. Even though Peter still has a lot to learn, Jesus celebrates the right answer. Because this is what the best teachers do. They, they celebrate progress. They celebrate victories. Even though there's still much to learn, when they stop and check for understanding, they celebrate. And we should celebrate understanding, especially if it's evidence of a true conversion. Even though in a moment Peter is going to prove that he still has really no idea what it means for Jesus to be the Christ or what it will mean for him, the fact that he knows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is worth celebrating. So Jesus answers him Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Apparently, Simon Peter's earthly father, his name is Jonah. uh, Bar-Jonah is the Aramaic way of saying son of Jonah. But it wasn't Peter's earthly father who revealed Jesus' true identity to him. In fact, it wasn't any flesh and blood, which is a Hebrew idiom that just means human being. It wasn't any human being. No, Peter makes a true confession because the Father in heaven revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what this means is that in order to really believe and to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Father in heaven must reveal that to us. A true conversion, then, as when God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to see and believe who Jesus really is. It's when who Jesus actually is and who we say he is becomes the same person. That's a true conversion. When we see that he's the Son of God and the Son of Man, that he walked this earth in history, that he died and rose again, That he defeated sin and death and the devil through his life, death, and resurrection. That he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And if you believe that, it's because God the Father has revealed it to you supernaturally, by his word, through his spirit, and you are blessed if you do. Now think about what this means. Here's Peter. He's a disciple of Jesus. He's been with Jesus ever since the beginning of his ministry. He's heard every bit of Jesus' instruction, both public and private. He's seen every single miracle. And yet none of that was enough for him to believe and confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. On top of all of that, it took an act of God. It took a miracle. God the Father, by an act of divine revelation, had to enable Peter to understand and believe and confess who Jesus really is. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this He says, For it has been granted to you, it's been given to you as a gift. That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what the suffering for his sake and how that's a gift. But this week, I want to focus on that idea that it's been granted to you to believe for the sake of Christ, who came to save his people from their sins. One of the themes of Matthew so far has been how the crowds have rejected Jesus. They've refused to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, in spite of all the evidence. And the reason is, is because it has to be granted to them to believe. The Father has to reveal Jesus to them as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And also in Matthew, we have people like the wise men from the east and the Canaanite woman who have believed with hardly any evidence. You see, God is not obligated to reveal to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if he does, we are blessed. Okay, so immediately after celebrating Peter's true conversion or sorry, true confession, because of his true conversion, Jesus goes on to tell him about a true foundation. Jesus says, "And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it." Um, you may know this or not, but much ink has been spilled throughout the centuries as to the identity of this rock in this verse. Some suggest Peter himself is the rock because the word for Peter and the word for rock have the same root. Uh, Peter means rock. So Jesus is saying under this view that you are the rock and on you, the rock, I will build my church. Uh, Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church has added several layers of doctrine on top of that idea uh, to the point where they claim the Pope in Rome holds the same office in the church that Jesus gives to Peter here okay well in uh, a Protestant reaction to the Roman Catholic view uh, some Protestants suggest that this rock is the confession that Peter has just made that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God and in this understanding what Jesus is saying here is that you are the rock and on the uh, sorry you are the rock and on the rock solid truth of your confession I will build my church. Okay. Another view is that Jesus is the rock. And so in this view what's happening here is Jesus is pointing at Peter and saying, "You are the rock and on this rock," pointing back at himself, "I will build my church." I'm not sure we have to decide, personally. I think we can affirm that Jesus built his church on Peter without also affirming the Catholic doctrine of the Pope of Rome, because I think they had to add to what Jesus says here in order to get to that doctrine. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says, So then, talking to the church... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So in this one verse, we kind of have all three of these views wrapped up together. Peter and the rest of the apostles are truly, in a real sense, the foundation of the church. And we can say that without contradicting the fact that Jesus is the ultimate foundation because he's the chief cornerstone. And the foundation that the apostles and the prophets provide for us with their true confession of who Jesus is comes to us through the scriptures. The rest of the New Testament is very clear that this is the foundation of the church. The apostles, the prophets, the scriptures they've given us with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And it seems to me that all Jesus is doing here is very simply affirming what the New Testament teaches everywhere else. Because the point of this passage is not the identity of this rock. The point of this verse is that Jesus is building his church it's not our church it's his church we don't build it he does and because he's the one building his church the gates of hell will not prevail against it he will build his church and he is building his church and when he builds it his way It storms the gates of hell, and people come out from behind the bars of sin and death into the freedom of his kingdom by becoming part of his church. That's how it works. And here's how it happens. There's the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which we now call the Bible. And Jesus, of course, is the cornerstone of all of it. And on top of that foundation, the Father reveals Christ to his people, producing true conversions where people come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then they make a true confession to where who they say Christ is, is the same as who Christ actually is. But in order for that foundation to be laid in every generation, Jesus is also going to raise up leaders who will make a true proclamation. Jesus goes on. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this is one of those verses that sounds really strange to our ears. This, what does binding and loosing even mean, we wonder? At least I imagine you wonder that, because I certainly did. So I actually think that if we break down this verse and think about it, it makes a lot of sense. So let me ask this question first. What is a key? A key is an instrument that unlocks a door and then locks a door, right? Okay. So Jesus then is giving Peter, who is the leader and spokesperson here for all the disciples in this scene. He's giving them the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So he's giving them authority to lock and unlock the door of heaven. Are you with me? Okay. And that's what it means to bind and loose. These are terms that rabbis used. uh, To bind something is to forbid it. To loose something is to permit it. So if we think about that in terms of a key that locks and unlocks the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is giving the disciples the keys to forbid someone from entering the kingdom of heaven or to permit them to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a lot of authority. Now, this cannot mean that they're given so much control to the point to where God has to do whatever they say. Remember, we just said that it's the Father who reveals the truth of Christ to his people. This also cannot mean that somehow the disciples will have knowledge of who God the Father is going to reveal himself to, okay? But it does mean that they have some kind of very real authority to lock or unlock the kingdom of heaven. Remember, Jesus is building his church. Jesus is building his church on the foundation of the apostles, And the prophets. And he's doing it with people who are truly converted because God the Father reveals who Jesus is to them so that they can make a true confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does all that happen? Well, it happens through the preaching of the word. Paul in Romans says this He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So faith, a true conversion with a true confession, comes from hearing about the foundation. And that happens when Someone preaches. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this He says, For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So the world did not know God through wisdom, which means we can't find him on our own by putting together the evidence ourselves. He's found only when the Father reveals himself to someone, and that happens when the word of Christ is preached. The kingdom of heaven is unlocked when the good news of the kingdom is preached, when sinners hear about their sinfulness, God's judgment, and God's mercy to them in Christ, and then they repent of their sins and believe the good news. And they're pulled from the gates of hell into the kingdom of heaven, and the church of God is built. But the kingdom of heaven is locked when we preach the very same gospel, but instead sinners refuse to put their trust in Jesus. Because that's part of the message. It is a message that is inclusive and exclusive all at the same time. It's inclusive because there is nothing we have to do. It's free to anyone, anywhere. If you know you are a sinner, and you embrace Christ as the one who saves you from your sins, then you enter the kingdom of heaven. If you're tired of being a slave to your thoughts and desires, if you're tired of telling yourself tomorrow is going to be different, only to wake up the next day and have it be exactly the same, doing the things that you hate, over and over again, you can be free from the gates of hell. Jesus will forgive you and welcome you into his kingdom, no matter where you're from or what you've done. But it's also exclusive, because you can only enter through coming to know who Jesus really is, and repenting of your sins, and believing in him, And making a true confession. And the church has been given authority from Jesus to assure those who have repented of their sin and made a true confession that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And the church has been given authority from Jesus to tell those who've not repented of their sin and made a true confession that they're still standing on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. And it's really actually a loving thing for them to know that. The point of locking the kingdom is not so someone will remain outside. It's so they'll know they're on the outside. It's so they'll know that's where they are. It's it's so they'll know that that the next step is to repent, and to put their trust in Jesus. Um, so, so next week is the, is the passage where Jesus says, we have to pick up our cross and follow him. And, and so we're, we're gonna get into a little bit more of this then, but, but let me just say this now. Let me give you an example, right? Imagine two people. One is, one is greedy, and one is immoral. Uh, The greedy person is uh, attending church, um, but they're currently stealing from their employer, and they're moving the money, and apparently it's a scheme that cannot be found out, and they're moving the money to an offshore bank account. And they're justifying it to themselves because they're underpaid, Uh, Their employer is a bazillionaire and, you know, can afford to to lose it. The other person is in a relationship, an immoral relationship, outside of marriage. Both of these situations are the path to hell. In order to enter the kingdom of heaven, both of these people would need to repent of their sin, and turn to Jesus. If, if both of these people are currently living in this way, and they are attending a church, believing themselves to be a Christian, part of the gospel message is that you must turn from that sin in order to be assured that you are a Christian. And I don't have time to unpack all of that right now, but it's, it's the truth. The, the, the keys, the part of the keys of the kingdom is to assure those who've repented of their sin and are trusting in Christ and Christ alone and are striving to please God with their life even though they fail constantly. The gospel, preaching of the gospel is to assure that person that, that they are a child of God. But the person who's in sin, dug in with their sin against God, refusing to change, refusing to repent, right? Part of the keys of the kingdom is to say, "No, you may very well be on the outside. And that's a loving thing. That is the loveliest thing, the sweetest thing for that person to know how much more awful would it be to tell that person, oh no, you're, you're okay. You're okay. Later in Matthew 18, Jesus is going to use the same language of the keys of the kingdom. And he's going to give authority to the church to practice church discipline as another way of locking and unlocking the kingdom of heaven. And so taking these two scenarios, what that would mean is that someone discovers that this person is filtering money from their employer, and they go to them and they say, you can't do this. You are professing to be a child of God, and you are stealing in an ongoing way from your employer, unrepentantly. Brother, I call you to repent. And then if that person says, no, I, I don't want to repent. I, I'm, I'm fine. Eventually, it would get to a point where the church has to say, well, then we don't believe, we'll turn you over to the authorities and we don't believe that you are a, 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 have had a valid profession of faith. Again, because it's such a loving thing for that person to know that because only if they know their true spiritual condition can they turn and be saved. Now, no one is saying that anybody is earning their salvation through obedience. No, that is not what's being said here. What's being said is the person who comes to know Christ as Savior will see the law of God, be convicted by it, turn to Christ in repentance and faith, And then endeavor to live as Christ calls us to live. It's also my understanding that these keys of the kingdom have been passed down from Peter and the apostles to the leaders of every true church. And the reason I say it's the leaders is because not every Christian can authoritatively lock and unlock. The kingdom of heaven for someone. There's a reason why when people are doubting their salvation, they go to their pastor or one of the elders or a mature Christian. The truth is not everyone who is a true Christian is qualified to help someone know they're standing in heaven. And I say that because not even the disciples are qualified here yet. Notice it's in the future tense. Jesus says, I will give them the keys of the kingdom. He hasn't given them the keys yet. In fact, in verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So at this point, they did not have enough understanding about what it meant that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, to be able to lock or unlock the kingdom for someone. So the best way to understand this is that the keys have been given to the officers of the church, those called and ordained as pastors and elders, those those who've been trained to rightly handle the word of truth. This is what Paul means when he tells Timothy, and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Because Peter and the apostles and Paul and Timothy took this message and trusted it to faithful men who took it and taught it to others. This message has come down to you and me, and the kingdom of heaven has been unlocked for every single one who repents and believes. But I don't want you to think that this is just my personal interpretation, so I want to close with this from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 83. What are the keys of the kingdom? The answer, the preaching of the Holy Gospel and Christian discipline toward repentance. Both of them open the kingdom of heaven to believers and close it to unbelievers. Next question. How does preaching the Holy Gospel open and close the kingdom of heaven? Answer. According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened by proclaiming and publicly declaring to all believers, each and every one, that as often as they accept the gospel promise in true faith, God, because of Christ's merit, because of what Christ has earned, truly forgives all their sins. This is what we need to hear as Christians every Sunday. That as as often as I turn to Christ, in true repentance and faith, all my sins are forgiven. And then this closes by saying this, the kingdom of heaven is closed, however, by proclaiming and publicly declaring to unbelievers and hypocrites, hypocrites in this context is those who believe themselves to be Christians, but are not; they're they're living uh, not according to Christ. That as long as they do not repent, the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them. God's judgment, both in this life and in the life to come, is based on this gospel testimony. Again, this is a little harder to hear and to understand and to take. But we need the diagnosis so that we can appreciate the cure. We need to know the, the real situation f- for those that we know and love, so that we can know how to rightly help them. If we have a family member who's living in an active, greedy, or immoral lifestyle, we need to know that their spiritual condition is perilous. We, we need to know that. And as painful as that is to receive, it's, it's, the medicine, it's the truth that we need to hear so that we can bring them the medicine they truly need. The, the other thing I want to point out about this, this, is, this is in, it goes against all of our current modern ideas on how to build a church. You see, we have thought in the modern America the modern West, that to build a church, what we need to do is, is create something that, uh, that will appeal to the average person. So then when they come into the doors, they think, oh, I like coffee. They serve coffee here. I like rock music. They, they play rock music from the stage. here. Well, this is great. And the idea there, and I think it's an earnest one and a genuine one, is to create an atmosphere where the person off the street will feel comfortable. And they'll feel safe, they'll feel at home. But, but the strange thing about, about Christianity is, is what saves people is the gospel. What saves them is the true preaching of the word. And so what we need to ask ourselves about when, because I, I want you all to invite your neighbors to church. I want you all to get to know your neighbors because you love them. And you long to see them be um, a member, uh, not of necessarily this church, but of a church, so that they can be part of the kingdom of God. What we need to ask ourselves is not, will my neighbor feel comfortable at church? What we need to ask ourselves is, will my neighbor hear the gospel at church? Do you see the difference? Because if they hear the gospel at church, what's going to happen Is they're going to have a true conversion. They'll make a true confession. They'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They'll repent of their sins. They'll put all their faith and trust in Him. And it's through the folly of preaching that this happens. And so we can really trust that the thing that we need to focus on as a church more than anything is that the true gospel is preached in this place every Sunday And then we can, with reckless abandon, invite all of our friends here, not worried a bit about what they're going to hear, trusting that it doesn't have to be anything that they'll like in their flesh. If the Father wants to reveal himself to them, he will. And he does that through the folly of preaching. It can be the silliest—we could have the silliest church ever. And as long as the true gospel is being preached here, crazy things are going to happen. Like people are going to come to know Jesus. They're going to repent of their sins. They're going to know that that heaven is theirs and and God is their father. And and when they know that, that all of their, that what a great sinner they are and that all their sins are forgiven, oh man, they're going to want to come back every Sunday to eat that meal again and again and again and again and again, right? Because that's how a church is built. That's how the church is built. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and and we pray. We pray, God, that you would give us courage to invite the lost here into this place every Sunday that they might hear the gospel preached and turn from their sin and put their faith in you. Who, out of free grace, out of unlimited mercy, Receives anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin to you and receive Christ as he really is and be saved, God. And that this happens through the folly of preaching, it happens through the weakness of our inability to create a church that they'll like. And instead, it happens through the honest preaching of your word, where Christ is magnified. And we worship you and you alone, God. As we turn to the table now, Father, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that for all with true faith and repentance who come to eat this meal, God, that you will nourish us because we are so weak and frail. We need your nourishment for this journey, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.